Howdy. I'm Eric from Antioch, California. Hey, I'm Kevin from Victor, New York. I'm Luke from Seattle. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you watched Saturday Night Live at all in the early 2000s, you probably saw Rachel Dratch. When she got out of that all-consuming job, she started dating. And in her new memoir, she talks about some of the horrible dates she went on with a guy who was full of himself, a guy who drank too much, a guy who bragged about eating horse meat. I mean, I went on some normal dates, too, but those normal dates don't make for a funny story. So you write about the ones that, you know, something was a little off about. It's Bullseye. This week, Rachel Dratch walks into a bar, meets a guy, and six months later, she's pregnant. We find out how it happened. Not literally. It's not like a birds and the bees thing. Plus, the creators of the comedy TV show Eagleheart talk about their primary inspiration, Walker, Texas Ranger, and about working with the show's star, the great Chris Elliott. And contributor Jordan Morris returns to tell America what's good and what's bad in the form of a completely arbitrary ranking. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on the show, we're joined by one of my favorite culture critics for some tips as to what is worth your time in the world of culture. This week, I'm joined by Jason Kotke, the proprietor of Kotke.org, one of the world's greatest collections of links to great things on the internet. I've heard it called the New Yorker of links to things on the internet. He joins me from his office in New York. Hey, Jason, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, Jesse? I'm doing okay. Let's start with this uh, list of the 50 greatest cartoons as selected by animation professionals that was put together by Jerry Beck. Tell me about it. What's interesting about the list is that most of them were made in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And this is a list that was put together in 1994. Um... You know, very Warner Brothers heavy, uh, also Disney, and they're still great. A lot of these you can get to on the internet, whether by hook or by crook. Many of them are on YouTube and stuff. Yes. Um, the top one, the, the number one thing on the list is what's Opera Doc. Uh, and I couldn't find that one on YouTube anywhere, but Duck Amuck is the second one. It's a Daffy Duck cartoon. Um, was able to find that one and, and a couple more. Look, Mac. Just what's going on around here? Let's get organized, hmm? How about some scenery? That's dandy. Ho, ho, that's rich, I'll say. Now how about some color, stupid? Hey! Not me, you swamp artist! <laughs> There's really not a lot of things that are funny from, you know... 60, 70, I'm trying to do the math in my head, 70-ish years ago uh, that still play today. I mean, even, you know, even the greatest comedies of the 1940s and 50s feel a little awkward in a modern context. And, you know, a, a lot of these, especially the Looney Tunes stuff, is just absolutely every bit as hilarious now as it was then. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're just really good. They were really well done, and you can, you can see the craft put into not only the animation, but the storytelling. 
Let's talk about what the space shuttle booster saw. First of all, tell us what this is. Uh, this is a video. It's about, I don't know, it's about 10 or 15 minutes long. Um, and it shows, uh, they stitched it together from a, a bunch of cameras that are mounted all over the space shuttle. Uh, I think they did it over a couple of missions. And uh, it's HD video. Um and it shows the shuttle launching going up, and it shows the boosters. The boosters at about 29 miles uh, up, they come off because they're, the fuel is spent. They come off, and then it shows them uh, gradually, uh, you know, pinwheeling their way back to Earth, and eventually splashing down in the ocean. We've seen a lot of pictures from space, but actually, sound is a big part of what's so cool about this one. Yeah, I mean, the sound is amazing on this thing. Uh, Apparently they had Skywalker Sound remaster it, so they took out all the audio junk, and you just hear, you know, what it sounds like to ride on the space shuttle. You know, if you were clinging to the to the rocket booster, <laughs> it sounds like a fiery death. I think if you're <laughs> clinging to the rocket booster. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. You you sort of get to hear, you know, not what outer space sounds like, but the upper atmosphere what it sounds like and it sounds sort of like this like a whale swimming in a tin can or something it's it's very atmospheric you know it's sort of a whistling and a humming it's really great to watch this video with, with the sound you know turned up in the headphones you can really you know you can really hear everything it seems like a really wonderful example of the kind of video that the web is made for. It's something that you can choose to watch. It's small and it's just jaw-dropping. And it's interesting because this video is, it's not a short video. It's not your typical like viral hit that, uh, you know, lasts, you know, the video is a minute and a half or whatever. This is, you know, I think it's like a 10 or 15 minute video and it's, and it's compelling for those 10 or 15 minutes. Jason Kotke from Kotke.org recommends Jerry Beck's list of the 50 greatest cartoons as selected by animation professionals and what the space shuttle booster saw. You can find links to those Kotke.org posts on our website, MaximumFun.org. Just click on Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. To call Eagle Heart a parody of 90s action shows like Walker, Texas Ranger is to sell it short because it is much, much, much stranger than that. And why wouldn't it be? It stars Chris Elliott, the man who twisted the sitcom around itself on Get a Life and who's made a mockery of the talk show on Letterman for years. A typical episode features the crime-fighting team, Chris Elliott and two other agents, played by Maria Thayer and Brett Gelman, going into hiding after witnessing a murder by the Albanian mob. They accidentally claim to be swingers. Then they end up in a swingers club. They take a managerial role in the swingers club, retrofit it with theme rooms, which increase business by 40%, discover that swingers are secretly plotting to take over the U.S. government, then pit the swingers against the mob in a nightmarishly brutal final burst of murderous violence. And all of that happens in 11 minutes. 
It's actually a pretty normal episode, relatively speaking. One episode features an evil stomach growth with its own brand of snack treats. My guests are the show's co-creators, Michael Komen, Andrew Weinberg, and Jason Woliner. Let's listen to a scene from the show. The three leads are looking for criminals in an abandoned warehouse, and Elliot is explaining why he became a marshal. hope you don't mind me asking, Chris, but hmm. why'd you come back? A vision, Susan. <laughs> Might even say a ghost. You see, I had another life before I was a marshal. I had a bride. More beautiful than a limited edition Thomas Kincaid. Soon she was Mitch Child, but something went wrong. She died during childbirth, so I raised the boy alone. I called him Gaby, and then... Oh, look, there's our guy. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. Well, one day I came home, and I found that Gaby had been brutally slaughtered. The next day I applied to be a U.S. Marshal to track down his killer. But every now and then, Gaby's sweet little ghost pops up to remind me just why I got into this crazy biz in the first place. Michael, Andrew, Jason, uh, welcome to the program. Thank Thanks you. for Hi, having me. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you. So, uh, Michael and Andrew, the two of you work together on uh, the Conan O'Brien television program. Mm-hmm. Um, is that where the idea for this operation was born? Uh, the very, very er- earliest idea uh, kind of came out of that because we were um, working on uh, the Walker, Texas Ranger lever. So. Andrew and I spent hours and hours watching episodes of that show. We can play uh, a clip of the Walker Texas Ranger lever, but I think you need to explain what the Walker Texas Ranger lever is for people who were not. uh, So, yes, Conan just wanted uh, a way to uh, ridicule the show. And so we thought that just showing uh, straight clips of it was the best way. (laughs) <laughs> and he would yank on a colorful handle, and uh, all of a sudden, a clip would start playing on screen. That's right. As you may know by now, all I have to do is pull that lever, and we will be treated to a classic clip of now NBC-owned Walker, Texas Ranger. And we pay nothing. That's the sweet part of the whole deal. <laughs> <laughs> That is my favorite Walker episode. He goes to a nursing home and beats the crap out of everybody. I mean, there was a thing we shot for the pilot that was really taken from an episode where um, they had, uh, um, I think a woman and her kid had been held. There's constant hostage holding by white supremacist groups because they can't, they didn't want to say like Muslims. And so they were just like skinheads were doing everything. And so I think some people were, being a kid, mom and her kid were being held hostage, and then uh, Walker like threw a gun through an air vent, and they like shot their way out or something. And then uh, they're thanking Walker at the end, and, and they said uh, like uh, like thank you so much, Walker. And he goes, uh, well, don't thank me. Thank the Second Amendment and good men like sound Sam Brownback who are sworn to defend it. <laughs> and it was just like uh, like I'd never seen that kind of like overt political endorsement on a show. It was just like you, that doesn't exist anywhere. Uh, and that, that's so I, I thought that kind of thing is like a good, like loathsome trait. You guys have watched astonishing volumes of Walker, Texas Ranger, because you had to pull clips for the Walker, Texas Ranger lever. Um, so tell me what you besides the fact that it was an odd, you know, ideological exercise, Walker, Texas Ranger. 
What what do you think is what did you like about the show and what did you like about Chuck Norris as a performer? Was there anything that you found interesting or or compelling? No, I mean honestly, <laughs> uh, I, I I thought I always thought that it was just bad all the way through. But uh, I think the one thing that if I if there's something I liked about him, he showed up one day uh, to do a live sketch with Conan, like at the end of when we were doing the lever. And I didn't get the slightest sense that he ever thought we, he had been made fun of. That he was just <laughs> friendly and uh, and he just couldn't have been more accommodating about doing it. Like, where, where do I stand and how do I do this stuff? And I was really thought, like, I, we've, like, been working for, like, a year to ridicule you. And I, Ollie, I genuinely wanted him to feel bad about the show he made. And <laughs> he... It was so obvious that he he you just couldn't touch it. He like you could not make that man uh, frown. You couldn't make him. You couldn't hurt him. Good work, guys. Just keep those Walker Texas Ranger clips coming. Who knew I could host this show just by pulling a lever? <laughs> oh, hi, Chuck. Hey, Conan. Something funny? No, no. I- no, I, I was just talking about Walker, Texas Ranger. That's all. It was, it was a great show. Yeah, I think so. Eight years isn't too shabby. Yeah, it's a long time on the air. Eight years. <laughs> say good night, Norris. No, you say good night, Conan. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are the co-creators of the action comedy series. Eagle Heart, which stars Chris Elliott and airs on Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Here's a not a typical opening scene from an episode of the program. The team of three U.S. Marshals are hanging out around the table at a poker game while what we presume to be a friend regales them with a colorful tale. So I look in the back seat, and what do I see? A boa constrictor looking right back at me. And I look over at Whitey, and I go, Whitey, next time we go to the hardware store, let me pick out the garden hose. (laughs) Man, I just love our weekly poker games. Yeah, right? Wait a minute. We don't have a weekly poker game. Die, pigs! I was just watching uh, clips of Chris Elliott on uh, The Letterman Show, which um, I-, I think y- you guys are all about the right age to have either grown up watching that or grown up with the at least the legacy and legend of watching that. What, what do you remember most about Chris Elliott as, uh, as a young performer? Um, I mean, he sort of had, it's everything he does is sort of a, like a different version of his kind of Chris Elliott attitude, which is this, um, like overconfident idiot get a life is like a little more childish. He's like a man child. And then other times he's a kind of adult about it, but he's still, he's really like cocky and arrogant, but he's a moron. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of my favorite stuff of his from Letterman was, um, like Morton Downey Jr. or uh, sometimes when we played Brando, but like when he was Morton Downey Jr., he'd be like a real, he was just the most arrogant jerk, but he didn't really have anywhere to go. He didn't know what he was talking about. 
Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us tonight. We got a good one for you tonight. You know, it used to be you go to your local Tasty Freeze for an ice cream cone, no man Wilson, and give you three choices. You can have vanilla, chocolate, or get the hell out of here, you little bastard. I got work to do. I'm not complaining. That's the way it should be. That was the good old days. Nowadays, you go into a 10-story Baskin-Robbins. They got so many flavors in there. By the time you leave, you don't know whether you're a man or a woman. They got your Tootsie Fruitsie, your Bubblegum Sundays, your Peanut Butter Coffee Parfaits. I got to tell you, where the hell are all these flavors coming from? Maybe we should get out our sickles and hammers and find out. Ice cream, there's too many damn flavors. We'll talk about it next on the Chris Hilly Jr. Show. Like, that part of him is in this character that, that he plays on Eagle Heart. I mean, he's... Um, he's tough, but he doesn't have much to back himself up. It's like watching a kid act like a jerk. There's just something you might <laughs> like about it. Um, There's uh, an innocence to it where, like, you can tell, like, he doesn't realize he's being a jerk, but he is. <laughs> and so you kind of have to feel sorry for him. You know, that's why we originally got so excited working with him. There's, there's no one else alive that does anything like what he does, I, I don't think. After a break, my guests talk about how they made Eagleheart more than just a parody of Walker, Texas Ranger. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. You know what's great? Social media. So social. That's why you should follow us on Twitter, at Bullseye. And like us on Facebook. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Michael Komen, Andrew Weinberg, and Jason Woliner. They're the creators of Eagle Heart, which airs Thursdays at midnight on Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Let's take a listen to a clip from the show. In this clip, uh, for his next case, the star of the show, Chris Elliott, as his character, Chris Monsanto, is going to have to go deep undercover. And it may require surgery. Chris... We're going to use all the technology at our disposal to transform you into an old man. Now, the first thing we're going to do is surgically damage your bladder. Now, if it's successful, you should feel the need to urinate about every 30 minutes. Then, we'll cut up your oxygen supply to induce a low-level dementia. Next, we'll hollow out all your bones so that they're nice and brittle. And finally, we'll give you a white wig like an old man. That will be the final touch to complete the transformation. So tell me about when you sat down and tried to figure out where you wanted to go from this crazy place. When you decided, I don't just want to parody Walker, Texas Ranger. Where did you want to go besides, um, you know, walking, talking, things that grow inside of people's (laughs) stomachs that are also evil and trying to take over all of us? One of the things we originally uh, latched onto was the idea of it's starting out on like a criminal case, then uh, some crime going on and them investigating. And then Chris would immediately like get distracted by something or lose interest. And the middle chunk of the show would be Chris doing something completely unrelated. <laughs> and then it would somehow tie back at the end. And that was like the first episode we shot 
not including the the pilot, was the Death Punch episode where it starts with this drug bust. He kills the leader with this death punch and he feels so bad about it that he moves in with the family and then it just becomes like a sitcom where like this family you know family that hates each other um and then at the end it um he kind of accidentally wanders back into this ridiculous twist and solving this case that you know he had forgotten about and uh and that was like that was the show that we all were like okay this is actually a show that we feel like we haven't seen and we could do fun things with where it kind of it's in the first minute uh, was like this kind of action show, and then it just would become something else. Because I think our main goal early on was to try to make a show that Chris Elliott would like and that he would want to be in. <laughs> yeah, that's still, and that was like yeah. less. That wasn't like less. Uh, everything he's ever made has been very ahead of its time. And, Is you know, like, Chris Elliott just like a fill-in for your father's? <laughs> I think. I, I mean, I think he's probably one of those people that we all sat around like. I don't think anyone ever made me laugh harder than his Letterman stuff. I mean, I, it's it'd be like. Uh, yeah, if you watch that stuff now, or, or FDR, or Action Family, or Get a Life, like it's all still so ahead of its time. Like it's, it still feels so fresh, and like it was such an. I mean, he was. Life. I mean, Chris is like three years older than Conan, but you don't think of them in the same generation just because Chris was doing so much stuff when he was like twenty-one years old on, on Letterman. Jason, you're uh, uh, you've directed many a thing. Um, you were the director of the Human Giant, a sketch show on MTV, and you directed a, a series of sh- short films for that accompanied uh, the movie Funny People. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, what kind of directing choices you make on a show like this. Are you simply recreating the aesthetic choices of... Uh, circa 1992 television action program or are you doing something different than no that? we on the pilot when it was kind of those scenes the action scenes were a direct reference to walker um i i watched a little bit of that and tried to mimic you know the way they would edit it and shoot it and we we shot those in like four three so it looked more dated um but you know, along with everything else, when we started doing the show, we threw out the entire look of the pilot. We, um, I brought in uh, a DP I'd worked with a little bit uh, named Christian Spranger, and we like really we we just looked at a lot of like like Hitchcock and Coen Brothers and Mad Men and the way that everything is like is like kind of very placed and and precise and intentional and a lot of like low angles, which were not always super flattering to actors, but. I just think look cooler and give it give it that kind of uh that tone that that we decided we wanted and like I had to f- they we built that Marshall's office uh stage and I had to really fight for a while to get them to put ceilings on it uh because I was like yeah you're going to see the ceiling in almost every shot and uh and the you know people the line producers like no you'll never see that I just throw a camera on your shoulders like no we won't we don't want to shoot this show like that and so yeah there was a lot of discussions about the the look of it and the feel of it and uh I just wanted it to feel different than uh, other comedy that I, I see on TV. Tell me a little bit about how making sort of specific stylized aesthetic choices affects the jokes. I think it, everything is in service of like the the either the writing or the the performance and the style that we've landed on for this show. I, I think because it isn't it isn't a show where the actors like do a lot of improv. We do we come up with new jokes and lines on set, but. We we very rarely because we have to shoot these so fast. It's very rare that we'll be like, okay, just play around with this take and, and have fun. And everything is is very specific, and the cutting is very specific, and and timing of everything gets 
very, very tight. And so I, I just think the look a lot is kind of set up almost like I was saying in like, like Cohen movies where everything is kind of put in a very specific place to interact with each other. I mean, I know the general idea was that we wanted it to look dramatic instead of like, yeah, we, we really just like silly. We just ripped off Mad Men. We watched a lot of Mad Men and, <laughs> and we're like, let's shoot a comedy like Mad Men uh, because that show is so funny. Um, and even now that it's back, just watching again, I forgot, like, I love that show, but I forgot how funny it is. And like, like Matt Weiner, actually he worked on a show with Chris and like the jokes on it are really funny. And I think we just like kind of watched that a lot and wanted to do something similar. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Michael Coleman, Andrew Weinberg, and Jason Woliner. They're the creators of Eagle Heart, which airs Thursdays at midnight on Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. What is the most ambitious single thing you've you've had to shoot or seen you've tried to shoot? There's this episode where uh, they go to another planet, <laughs> which was difficult on our budget. Yeah. Uh, how Okay, so how did you make a space planet? Well, uh, well that's the give... technical term, correct? Space right. planet? Well, that's... <laughs> it's all... Uh, the, uh, this guy, Dan Butts, uh, who, who does did the production design on the show. He's he, just, uh, he's just amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. He Got worked on Mr. Show. He built all their sets and like drug Achusets and like, I mean, he's just, and he does all the, um, the Oscar opening films where they recreate, uh, you know, like uh, scenes from movies and put Billy Crystal or whatever. And I worked with him a little bit on when Aziz, I'm sorry, hosted the, uh, MTV movie awards. Uh, I helped out and Dan did all the sets for those. And just watching him, like he would just watch a movie scene and be able to, build the other half of the room and you would compare the the shots and it would be identical i think like was it like a day it was not a lot of advance notice when we wanted him to recreate uh jack lemon's apartment in the apartment yeah we do an episode based on the apartment this year and he built the he rebuilt the apartment from the apartment <laughs> and it's amazing the titular apartment yes yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what's the craziest stupidest idea that you actually made into tv this year i i lost perspective on which things are really <laughs> crazy and really stupid i mean objectively they're probably all really some stupid well there's one like the stupid. one that you had referenced before like um just because even to talk about them i think if anyone's a fan listening i don't want to it takes a lot of the, a lot of the fun is seeing where these episodes go minute to minute um, but like the one that you'd mentioned before is, uh, you know, basically it starts off, they find a growth in, in Brett's stomach and, uh, and they take it out and, it, and it's called a bezoar. And basically it's something that Andrew had seen on, was it My Strange Addiction or? Yeah, a woman ate um, couch cushions. She would carry a couch cushion <laughs> around with her and unzip it, take off a chunk of that like orange foam and eat it. And then uh, the show <laughs> took her to a doctor and showed an x-ray, and she just had a stomach-shaped clump of couch cushion in her. And they're like, this is called a bezoar, and all this stuff, you're not passing it, just gets stuck there. And so Andrew was telling us about that, and then and I think he was out, and then Michael and I <laughs> were kept talking about it. And by the time Andrew came back, we're like, okay, what if uh, they take this bezoar out of Brett's stomach and and then they decide like well let's like let him carry it around for a week it'll teach him about responsibility and then you think oh, okay i'm watching like a, a take on like a degrassi style thing where where they would carry around like a egg or a sack of flour Ooh, it's a horrible smell hey guys what in the hell is that that is a bezoar it's a mass of indigestible matter that accumulates in the stomach and this little beauty is made up mostly of hair 
poker chips, and chunks of couch cushion. I'm a daddy. <laughs> okay, Brett, here, we'll destroy that for you. No! He's become awfully attached to it. Tell you what, why don't you let him take it home, carry it around for a week, and maybe it'll teach him a little something about responsibility. And then by the next scene, it's, you know, growing. It's like washing machine sized. And so you're like, what's going on? And by the scene after that, <laughs> it hatches. And then there's, a, there's like a goopy version of Brett inside. who's like this weird alien-like being. Another me. <laughs> Hello. <sighs> Great. Another Brett. Can we get the hairy turd back, please? Keys blagum from clock. I beg your pardon. That means let's go get milkshakes in the new secret friend language I invented just now. Oh, I see. I'm gonna name you Bezor. Okay, folks. Well, this looks like it's gonna be a lot of fun. That's all in the first four minutes of the episode. So, um, and then and then there's these fake commercials that kind of propel the story forward. And like you said, there's he's got his own brand of snack treats. I'm always on the go, and I just don't have time to stop and eat. That's why I love Bezor Bites. Bezor Bites are a nutritious, bite-sized snack formulated for today's active lifestyle. You'll like my bites. <laughs> I love the way you describe that. Um, and so it is just like, and that, that is, I think you can watch that kind of stuff and just feel, hopefully, us, you know, just having fun coming up with this stuff and trying to make each other laugh. Well, Michael, Andrew, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to talk to you. Uh, Thanks thank so you much. for having us. Thank you. Eagleheart airs Thursdays at midnight on Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Every month here on Bullseye, we invite contributor Jordan Morris back onto the program to share his immeasurable expertise at ranking things. What's hot? What's not? He'll tell you. It's Jordan Ranks America. Still on the list at number five, it's Blockbuster Video. Out-of-business blockbusters always have a sign reading, Store Closing, This Location Only. Sure, guys, This Location Only. Blockbuster, your optimism is adorable. Holding on at number four, it's kiwis. Sure, you've heard that kiwis are delicious whether you peel and slice them or eat them with a spoon, but I bet you didn't know that the Chinese call them sun peaches. of nowhere at number three, it's China. Now that it's public knowledge that in China, kiwis are called sun peaches, they're officially the country to beat in 2012. Eyeing the top spot at number two, it's the guys from work. Sure, these boys are on the straight and narrow at the office, but after they punch out, just try and keep them away from the brewskis and hot wings. Finally, reaching the top of the charts at number one, it's Die Hard 2. This 1990 action classic is remembered primarily for its amazing stunts, but it's also got some timeless jokes about Bruce Willis not understanding fax machines. From the bottom to the top, 
I'm Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris co-hosts the comedy program Jordan Jesse Go with a very handsome young man named Jesse Thorne. You can find it in iTunes or online at MaximumFun.org, though. Be advised that it is just full of swears, just lots of lots of swear words. You can find Jordan on Twitter at Jordan underscore Morris. After a break, Rachel Dratch walks into a bar, meets a guy, and six months later, she's pregnant. It's all in her new book. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio, Binternational. Hey, podcast listeners, review our show in iTunes. It makes a big difference and it only takes a second. I'm waiting for you to do it. You're opening iTunes now. You're typing in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You're clicking on review. Now you're clicking on that fifth star. Now you're typing in why the show is so great. Now I'm thanking you. Great work. Hello there. My name's Graham Clark. And I'm Dave Shumka. And together we host a podcast called Stop Podcasting Yourself. This is a file that you download from the internet and then you listen to it in your pod. What's that about, you ask? Well, who are you to ask? Who do you think you are? Yeah, get lost, bozo. (laughs) We're a couple of stand-up comedians in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And every week we bring a guest on the show. Sometimes they're Canadian. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're a ghost. It's like you're sitting in on a friendly... Uh, afternoon chat. Plus, we're Canadian, so uh, you get a tax break. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes or online at MaximumFun.org. Huh? Ooh, spell. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Rachel Dratch, was a cast member of Saturday Night Live from 1999 to 2006, performing signature characters like the classic Hollywood producer Abe Scheinwald, the moment-ruining, sad trombone-inducing Debbie Downer, and Denise Zazu McDenough, the absurdly thickly-accented Southie teen. Here she is alongside Will Ferrell in one of my favorite Saturday Night Live roles, The Lovers. Would anyone care for some baba ganoush or hummus before we start our main course? Mm. It's so wonderful, Walter, when we're graced with a visit from you. Mm. Well, I always treasure my conferences at the university and, of course, my time with my old colleagues. I'm just so glad I got to come along. It's so beautiful here. Oh, you really must take advantage of the view from Pullman Falls. It's absolutely perfect for lovers' walks. Mm. Yes. Are you taking lovers' walks? Uh, what do you mean? Well, are you at the point in your relationship where you can walk hand in hand as lovers? I, uh, guess so. <laughs> Actually, we haven't been seeing each other all that long. Oh, I see. So in due time, eh, lover? Yes, Virginia. After her run on Saturday Night Live ended, she found herself adjusting to the life of a regular working actress without a steady job for the first time in more than 10 years. She's worked in TV, film, and theater since with recurring roles on 30 Rock, among other venues. But the biggest change in her life is a baby. In her early 40s, she'd been long-distance dating a boyfriend for a few months when she discovered, much to her shock, that she was pregnant. Her new book, Girl Walks Into a Bar, is about her career, her dating misadventures, and her life as a 40-something new mom. 
Rachel Dratch, uh, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. You've just encapsulated my life beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) My my work here is done. (laughs) I can only imagine that there's other stuff other than that. Not, Not much. You pretty much got it. I think we're done here. You write a lot and and very eloquently, I think, about um uh, about your improv experience in Chicago, um, improv and sketch experience, yeah. I should say. And I was reading an interview that you did. I think it was. It seemed like it was right when you had just been cast on Saturday Night Live, and you were describing a, an improv group that you were in at uh, the Improv Olympic in Chicago, which is a legendary improv theater in Chicago. And it had in it, um, I, I'm working from memory, not notes here, but I, I think it was uh, Matt Besser and Ian Roberts, who both uh, went on to be in the Upright Citizens Brigade, Adam McKay, who also went on to be in the Upright Citizens Brigade and, and is famous for being Will Ferrell's writing and directing mm-hmm. partner um, and wrote on Saturday Night Live for quite a long time. Um, Neil Flynn, who folks might know as the janitor from Scrubs and has also done all kinds of other television acting work. Um, And all of these guys are improv legends. The other thing that struck me about them is that they're they're all all, um, huge (laughs) Midwestern type dudes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they're all actually from the Midwest. Matt Besser, I know, is from Arkansas. Yeah. Well, they're all very tall and most of them have imposing figures. Um, but I actually think that was good training because I was the only woman on the team and, um, you know, it made me, you know, if I wanted to get out and say something, I had to really get out there and say something. So it was, uh, it was a good group to be in. Something that I really enjoyed reading in your book was, um, and I don't mean to revel in, in your misfortune, but was how little you liked, uh, attending Dartmouth. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and again, you know, I apologize I, for enjoying something, enjoying hearing that you didn't enjoy something. Um, well, that's where the comedy lies, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me about how how you ended up uh, how you ended up choosing and and going to uh, Dartmouth. Well, when I walked around, it was like all the guys looked like they were out of an '80s teen movie, and so I was kind of <laughs> like, "Oh, this is so cool." But then what I realized when I got there is like it was all like the James Spaders from Pretty in Pink and the the Niedermeyers from Animal House, <laughs> and um, that I was more of like you know the Ducky and the Bluto figure. <laughs> so you know, I kind of got sucked in by that like preppy thing, <laughs> and then I realized, wait a minute, I don't belong here. But I have to say though, eventually I did like ferret out my kind of people, um, aka a lot of closeted gay men. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how did you how did you figure out that uh, comedy was uh, uh, was not just the path for you, but was even a, a path for you? You know, I started doing improv in college, and um, I really liked it. And um, I don't—God, I don't even know what propelled me to Chicago. But, we, you know, we had gone—as my improv group, we had gone to sort of check out Chicago. And so I thought, I'll just try it and see what Chicago's like. But I didn't have any instant success. It was sort of gradually, like, each year I'd make a little bit more progress. So then that kind of kept me in it. You know, you know, the first thing was like, oh, I got on the house team at Improv Olympics. Then you're in it for another year, you know, and then then I got in the touring company of Second City. And then that's your path to getting on the main stage at Second City. So I was in Chicago for nine years um, and I did the main stage for four years. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rachel Dratch. Her new memoir is Girl Walks Into a Bar, Comedy Calamities, Dating Disasters, and a Midlife Miracle. One of Dratch's most recognizable characters from Saturday Night Live is Debbie Downer. Here's a clip from it. Now, the premise of the sketch is pretty straightforward. Debbie Downer is ruining a family trip to Disneyland with her non-winning attitude. But after a few Downer-type comments, the rest of the cast starts to crack. The other players in the sketch include Jimmy Fallon, Fred Armisen, and guest host Lindsay Lohan. So, uh, hey, who wants to go on Space Mountain with me? Me! I want to go to every country in Epcot and greet them in their own native language. Hola, konnichiwa, hi. Did you guys hear about that train explosion in North Korea? (laughs) Media is so sensitive there. So secretive. (laughs) (laughs) We may never know how many people perished. The Saturday Night Live audition is uh, is has this very specific format, which is you do uh, a certain number of original characters and a certain number of celebrity impressions, and so a lot of people will go will, will have spent their whole sketch comedy careers with that in mind and have developed some impressions and characters and then use them on their audition, and if they don't get the part, they're sort of <laughs> busted. <laughs> Um, and you're not really an impressionist particularly. Um, so what was it like for you after you had done one round of auditions to come back a year later and, um, have to come back with a, with a whole new set of stuff? Well, you know, I felt like I'd used the really good stuff the first audition. So then I had my sort of second stringer characters. So, um, I didn't feel quite as good about the characters I brought, but, um, I came back with a lot more impressions than I had the first year, so I don't know. Maybe it all balanced out or something. What were the impressions that you did? Um, I think I did, like, Drew Barrymore and Sarah Jessica Parker and, um, oh, geez, I don't even remember. The first year I did Callista Flockhart, which that was, like, my one my one good impression. And then the other ones were, like, okay. But, um, God, I don't remember. Oh, I, I know. I did Paula Poundstone, if anyone even knows who she is. <laughs> the comedian, stand-up comic, I did her. Um, and I don't even remember the other ones. It was like 80 years ago. <laughs> I I like the idea of, of Saturday Night Live writing a whole string of Paula Poundstone-based yeah. sketches. You know what? I actually did end up doing it on the show once. In one of those scenes where they have like a bunch, like a string of people come through the door. I actually did do Paula Poundstone. I mean, Paula Poundstone has actually been on this show. Paula Poundstone is really funny, but how do you do, how do you even come to develop an impression Um, of Paula Poundstone? Because the reason she's such a random, it's because like you just hear and you're like, oh, I could do that. So then you're like, all right, she's going in the the (laughs) trick bag, you know, that kind of thing. As opposed to someone super famous. Give me a set of shoulder pads wide enough. Shoulder pad, yeah, it's all about the shoulder pads and the necktie. <laughs> um, did you already have friends working on Saturday Night Live when you went to work on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, well, Tina was there writing, and Adam was there writing, and Horatio was a cast member, so that's pretty much who I knew. How did that affect? Do you think that your sort of entrance into that world? It seems like a lot of people 
kind of drop into it and are overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I mean, it can be really overwhelming. I'm sure it helped me that, you know, Adam and Tina were there. I mean, I ended up writing a lot with Tina, and she already knew the ropes in terms of, like, the, the way a scene works at SNL is very different from Second City, because Second City, you can kind of take your time more and develop a character more, and the audience will, is, it's more of a theatrical experience. But at SNL, like, someone's going to change the channel. Like, you have to have the jokes out there right away. So Tina knew that in a way that I didn't know it. So she really helped me when I first got there in terms of if I had a character idea, like, it could be a great character, but I didn't know how to get it into an SNL format scene. So I wrote a lot with her, and I'm sure that helped me greatly. On the flip side, though, like, when you get there, it is just kind of sink or swim. Like, no matter who you know and whatever, you know, at the end of the day, you're kind of on your own. And um, you just have to figure out the system by yourself, sort of. Do you uh, do you remember the first thing that you got on the air that really worked? Um, well, the first thing I got on that I had a part in writing was Sully and Denise, you know, that I wrote with Tina. Um, and it was a, based on a Tina and I used to do these Boston characters at Second City. So then we brought it to SNL when we both ended up there. That was the first thing that I had a part in writing that really worked. Is the light flashing? All right, cool. Yo, 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 this is Pat Sullivan and Mr. Nichols' fourth period audiovisual class. For my video project, I'm filming a trip to Burlington Mall with my girl Denise. I swear to God, Sully, if you don't get that Burger King breath out of my face, I'm going to get wicked pissed off. Hey, kids, kids. I'm going to have to ask you not to dry hump by the food products. Are you the manager? You flatter me. I'm the assistant manager. Oh, I wanted to know if you're hiring any holiday help. We sure are. You kids filming this? He is. It's a school project. He's not a verbal person, but he is a very visual person. I got a learning disorder because my mom was a big huffer back in the day. Well, yes, we are looking for part-timers. Your name? Denise McDonough. But everybody calls me Zazu! The schedule of Saturday Night Live is one of the craziest things in the world to me because it is... uh, I, I mean, I think one of the things that's lost because the production is so slick is that it is genuinely a live show that is genuinely almost completely written within the space of a week, written, rehearsed, and performed within the space of a week. And so, you know, sometimes it will be, for for people who work on the show, a couple of weeks in a row of working continuously insane hours And then sometimes also you'll just not be working that week. Um, What was it like to have for that long uh, a job that so dominated, sort of despotically dominated your life? Well, you kind of get used to it. I mean, you know, it's what you've wanted for, you know, your whole comedy life. So you're you're psyched to be there when it's like three in the morning because it's just, oh, my God, I'm on Saturday Night Live. So, um, you know, you, you soon learn, like, don't make any plans with outside friends because you'll probably have to break them or you won't feel like keeping them, you know. So, um, yeah, it's a very nocturnal, intense schedule. But I think that kind of goes with comedy. Was it hard to shift gears when... Because I mean, you it, from from reading the book, I get the impression that it was like a conscious decision when you found yourself a- outside of that situation and in a life that you were, you know, that you were the boss of, that you were like, you know what, I'm going to date people on dates. 
Well, I just had run out of excuses because I had nothing but time. And so here I was lamenting, like, you know, oh, I'm single, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, you know, well, I guess I had to do something about it. But, like, I really had time to date at SNL. I just kind of used SNL as my excuse of why I wasn't really actively pursuing the whole dating scene because it, it kind of made for, like, a comfort. I mean, I talked about, like, it was my comfort zone, so I didn't have to put myself out there because I could just hang with these really funny dudes and um, my friends from outside. And, you know, I had my whole little comfortable situation. So why go out with a total stranger? It seems like a lot of the dating that you did was was really just a matter of sort of putting your head and shoulders down and plowing your way through what was left of the dating pool. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I went on some normal dates, too, but those normal dates don't make for a funny story. So you write about the ones that, you know, something was a little off about. That's where the laughs lie. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> um. So you actually, I mean, the the title of your book, uh, A Girl Walks Into a Bar, comes from the fact that you actually ended up meeting uh, the father of your child uh, at a bar. Um, he was just kind of like a good-looking guy that you ended up chatting to while you were waiting for a, a drink order. Yeah, I went and we were sitting, I was with my friend, we were sitting outside, and um, he was just standing next to where I went up to the bar. And um, I don't know, we just started chatting. Then... I had to go back out to my friend. I was like, oh, you guys should come join us. So they came and sat outside with us, and that's how it all started. You started dating this guy, and, and as you mentioned, he was in town from California, actually in town from from Mill Valley, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah. And when when you found out that you were pregnant, the two of you had been dating for... Uh, a matter of months, like six months, and dating six months, yeah, and dating long distance. So you know, you, you had a good relationship going, but well, yeah, I think you know we weren't like, oh my god, I found my soulmate, la la la. We were just more like, you know, we had fun. We um, he would visit each other. We we'd talk on the phone a lot. Like I don't want to make it seem like, you know, I barely knew the guy, but but we we had been dating long distance for only six months. So you know, we'd probably spent about. A month total in each other's actual presence. One of the moments that's that's really intense in the book is you telling your folks that you're pregnant, and you know, just like anybody's parents, I'm sure they've been bothering you to have to bring them grandchildren for twenty years. Um, well, what I said is like actually, like I knew that they would probably want grandkids, but they never really bugged me about it because I think you know they knew that it was kind of a a spot of, you know, anxiety for me, like, oh, I'm not going to kid. So they they weren't hassling me. But I did think, like, you know, because I was older and I just thought that they had kind of given up on the grandkids thing. Um, and there weren't any grandkids in the family. And so I thought I was going to come in with this great news and they were going to be, like, <gasps> all excited. But actually they were just more kind of, like, stunned. They kind of looked at me like, her? And um, so I left, as I said in the book, I left feeling like Juno because I felt a little <laughs> bit like I was – 16 and telling my parents I got pregnant or something. And Not that they were, they, they came like around super... pretty shortly thereafter. Oh, yeah. They're like in love. Um, but yeah, like, you know, they were very supportive, but they, I think it, in that moment, they were, it wasn't the reaction I was expecting. What was the thing that has, that happened to you, especially 
you know, at the beginning that, that you least expected, that you were least able to plan for? Well, you know what's weird? The actual thing that, the, it was sort of a flip around. Like, I, I was most surprised by how well everything went. I mean, in terms of John and and me um, dealing with a newborn. And, like, it was just kind of a strange, positive experience. I mean, yeah, you know, you get no sleep and blah, blah, blah. But I was kind of used to no sleep from SNL. And, like, I was always a night person. And so I wasn't, like, that didn't that didn't throw me at all, the no sleep thing. And then, I don't know, like, we were both just together in this really actually cool way when you think of our circumstance. Um, So that was probably the most, you know, pleasantly surprising part of it. And then beyond that, um, although I do talk in the book about, like, trying to be in any sort of seduction mode or flirtation mode, I should say, (laughs) like when, you know, you're hooked up to a breast pump. It's like all the mystique (laughs) is just gone. And there's a lot of like, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of that in the book of just being like, you know, looking your worst, stripped down and you're, you know, your inner animal core and you're with this person that like six months ago, you were like, hey, can I get you a drink? I mean, it's like that was like the funniest yet surreal part of the whole story, I guess. And then, you know, I didn't have really many jobs going on, so I had a lot of time to throw myself into the whole mom thing. So that turned out to be a fun thing instead of a bad thing. Well, Rachel Dratch, a a thousand congratulations and thanks for joining us on Bullseye. Thank you. Rachel Dratch's new book is A Girl Walks Into a Bar, Comedy Calamities, Dating Disasters, and a Midlife Miracle. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the Outshot. Some records are just easy to listen to. They're the ones you reach for over and over. You get something out of them every time. They feel right no matter what the circumstances. They're just they're vibrant. That's what I love about Les McCann and Eddie Harris's album, Swiss Movement. It was recorded live at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1969. I don't think that anyone at the time could have reasonably expected that it would become a hit. I mean, it was a live jazz record for one thing, but it did. The band hadn't even played together before. I think that freshness, a live record of what was basically an impromptu band, is part of what makes the album so great. It just feels alive, like a great party. And part of what makes it so fresh is that they were creating a genre, too. The opening track, compared to what, was the first soul jazz hit. It's a protest song, but it's the kind of protest song that makes you want to invite some friends over and have a protest good time. The president, he's got his war. Folks don't know just what it's for. Nobody gives us a rhyme or reason. Half a one doubt. They call it treason With chicken feathers all the way out Come on, you can't tell me you're not having a party right now Trying to make it real compared to what Suck it to me That's my outshot 
Sunday sleeping not trying to duck the wrath of God. Preachers filling us with fright. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of nut. I can't use it. I'm trying to make it real compared to what. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Julia Smith is our producer, Nick White, our editor. Our interns are Joe Molinelli and Justin Morissette. Our theme music, Huddle Formation, by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. You can email me if you have thoughts about the show, jesse at MaximumFun.org. And remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign. Special thanks this week to Jason Isaac at WNYC for engineering the New York side of our Rachel Dratch interview. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.